Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, arts, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Elizabeth Fremantle. Elizabeth is the critically acclaimed author of seven novels. Her latest, Disobedient, focuses on the life of art artist Artemisia Gentileschi. Her first novel, Queen's Gambit, about Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's last queen, has been adapted for the screen as Firebrand, starring Alicia Vikander and Jude Law, which premiered at Cannes in May. She has written three more Tudor set novels, Sisters of Treason, Watch the Lady, and The Girl in the Glass Tower. As E.C. Fremantle, she has written two gripping historical thrillers, The Poison Bed and The Honey and the Sting, and all her work seeks to revisit the lives of remarkable women who have been forgotten or misrepresented by history. She currently lives in London. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Well, I'm inviting, I mean, there could have been many I could might have chosen, but I've chosen my latest protagonist of Disobedient, Artemisia Gentileschi. Okay. Um, I've chosen a uh, teenage sensation, uh, Mary Shelley. <laughs> um, and I've chosen Emma Darcy, because I wanted someone from now. Mm. And and so starting off with Artemisia Gentileschi, uh, why her particularly? How has she kind of inspired you? I know obviously your most recent novel um, revolves around her story, but why do you feel she would be a great addition to your dinner party table? Well, Artemisia is a very special character from history and I think in a sense she was a really modern woman for her time. She lived in the in Rome in the very early 17th century. So uh, 16, early 1600s really was when she grew up. Uh, my novel, she's 17 in 1611, and that's the year that my novel covers. Um, she was, for those who don't know, she was an artist, but at a time when there were almost no female artists, it was completely taboo for a woman to really have a profession. So there were one or two portrait painters, uh, female portrait painters of the period and in that kind of 50 years before and after her. There were some and some very successful portrait painters. But what Artemisia did differently was she, she painted the kind of subjects that would, uh, you know, were totally inappropriate for the contemporary idea of a woman, a, a, you know, woman's behaviour. She painted really brutal, violent biblical scenes, and often they are scenes of women brutalizing men. So her very, very famous painting is uh, a, a version of Judith slaying Holofernes. It's a biblical story about Judith, a Jewish woman who uh, was living in a besieged uh, village where everyone was starving, the water was running out and they were being besieged by the Romans and Judith goes out to the Roman camp and she beheads the the, the army general and so the siege is, is, uh, is ended. So she's a heroine really. And 
this in this picture that Artemisia painted, she doesn't paint a lot of people, a lot of artists have tackled that subject. Mm. But uh, they would be, you know, Judith leaving the camp with the, you know, the, the general's head kind of discreetly in a basket. There might be a little bit of blood drooling out the side and you might be able to glimpse a little bit of the, the head. But what she paints is the act of beheading itself. So she's got two women holding this man down and literally hacking his head off. It's, I mean, it sounds really grotesque and in many ways it is but it's an extraordinary piece of painting and that to have been painted by a woman is kind of for me an act of kind of a sort of proto-feminist act you know proto-feminist vision on her part um, and the only painter as far as I've been able to discover who had tackled that particular scene the act of beheading was Caravaggio about 15 years before Mm -hmm. And his picture is strikingly different. His Judith is, um, she seems almost sort of shocked and horrified at the fact that she's chopped off the head of this man. She doesn't look strong enough to have done it. And mm -hmm. what the eye is drawn to in Caravaggio's painting isn't the, the monstrous beheading of this man itself, which is the focal point of Artesi Artemisia's picture, but the uh the breasts of judith she's wearing this white kind of chemise and it's all stretched over her breast nipples erect and that's the first thing the eye is drawn to so there's there's a sexualization of this young woman and um it's kind of strangely erotic and of course it's you know it's typical of its period and the male gaze looking at the female body um as something erotic and desirable, even when she's beheading someone. Mm. Whereas Artemisia, you know, these two women, they're strong, they've got big, strong arms, and they are completely dressed. They're not erotic objects at all. What Artemisia has done and what she did in all her art is she shifts the gaze from the male gaze to an understanding of females in the in the pictures and how they felt about what was happening to them so they were in you know really really controversial and what she was doing she was playing with you know playing with kind of traditional subjects but recasting them from a female perspective so she was groundbreaking and you know in a sense, these were, though there was no sense of feminism at the time, far from it. I mean, women were so far from gaining any form of jurisdiction over their lives and their bodies in that time. But she managed to do that in her art, which was an extraordinary act of defiance. Mm. I mean, you've kind of introduced her as this prolific painter, um, but also young, really young as well. Um, as is Mary Shelley. How does Mary Shelley fit into your dinner party table? So Mary Shelley, uh, you know, she, this woman, I mean, I love the story about how, you know, she wrote a masterpiece. At, I think she was also 17, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and she wrote a masterpiece, Frankenstein, at this age. And she was surrounded by all these other very, very talented men, Byron and Shelley and all the men who were so famous. And they had a competition to see who could, could write this, 
scariest or the best ghost story. Mm-hmm. And of course, hers was Frankenstein. Do, how, do we know any of the others or the men around her, their, their stories? No, the one that survived was hers. And, you know, it's, an, it's a work of extraordinary sophistication, a work that taps into anxieties about, about um, technology at the time. I and mean, we still have that now where, you know, anxieties now are about AI. Well, in those days, anxiety was about kind of scientific progress and, you know, this was the the rise of the, you know, the the train travel and science was becoming something terrifying as it, you know, continues to be. Scientific progress always causes anxiety. And she's managed to use this, this symbol of anxiety about science in her book about a man that creates another man who you know that that he loses uh, over which he loses control and so i think it was so prescient in its time but continues to be and to have created a work like that at you know at that age is astonishing really mm. and also her her biography is fascinating she not only seems like really great company and um, because, you know, she was experiencing living a life of a libertine, really, and, you know, living life according to her own desires rather than the mores of her time or at the expectations of female behavior. So she has that that alongside uh, Artemisia, really. You know, she, she did it her own way. Mm-hmm. And so I think she'd be a really great dinner party guest. I think those two would have a lot to say to each other. <laughs> I agree. And and how about Emma Darcy? Because um, they're a non-binary actor who's very famous at the moment, obviously, kind of doing incredible things. Uh, why have you chosen um, them for your dinner party? Well, I think Emma is kind of, she's she's a groundbreaking, they, I apologise, they are a groundbreaking actor. Um, and really just on the beginning of their their career so they are young not as young actually as the the two women that I've I've invited to my dinner but I think they are really really a very very talented Mm. uh, person and also I I don't know for for your your uh, listeners um Emma is playing uh, Reniera Tagarian, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, in uh, House of the Dragon. They're, they're filming the second season mm-hmm. uh, as we speak. And I think they are not only an, an extraordinary acting talent, but somehow in that role had a, a kind of brought a kind of subtlety to what could you know what could be something kind of quite commercial and you know lots of kind of sex and and ex, sort of female exploitation in a way and what they've done is kind of turned everything onto the female part and you know that's obviously partly to do with the writers but you know, there's a certain subtlety and strength that they brought to that role mm. that I was completely blown away by. Mm. And um, so I really, really feel they are they are one to watch mm. because, you know, they're not only doing kind of 
interesting things on the red carpet, you know, defying expectations about what people should wear and what people with female bodies should wear on the red carpet. I think it's really interesting. And I also think there's something about um, the non-binary outlook that feels incredibly progressive, <laughs> you know, to kind of move away from ideas of gender. I feel that's, that's progression. That's, that's somehow the future. Mm. It, it feels like that's something that ultimately can create an equality. And I think it's very courageous to stand up in public. Uh, you know, I think that, that that can attract a lot of difficulty, a lot of hate, a lot of misunderstanding. And I feel in some ways, someone like Emma is the kind of woman I, if I were writing 200 years in the future, the kind of woman I would want to write a historical novel about, the kind of person, I keep doing it. I'm misgendering, I, you know, that's because I'm old and I need to become accustomed. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel they're really interesting. Also, they, they study fine art um, and they have a very intellectual approach to their decisions about acting. And I think, so I think they'd be really great company. Mm. Also, I have to, uh, full disclosure here, they have recorded the uh, audiobook for Disobedient. Oh, how and, exciting. Yeah, oh, which is wow. a massively big thrill for me. Yeah. When I first listened to it, which was only quite recently, I was completely blown away. They have brought a whole new kind of, there's a new um, element to my novel, you know, investing the characters with their own voices and things. It was completely, I mean, a real goosebump moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very lucky to, to have a, an actor of that caliber recording my book. Mm. I mean, that's a little bit meta with um, Artemisia at the table and her kind of future, <laughs> yeah. future yeah. kind of voice, you know, yeah. sitting next to her. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to know what they they had to say to each other. Yeah. Do you think that the three of them would get on? Um. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say when they come from such different periods in time, but essentially, I do think so. I I feel like they would have a great deal in common. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, where is the dinner party kind of being held? Where is it? Oh my goodness! Where's it going to be? Um, I think it's going to be, um, probably, um, in a, a kind of remote place, um, by the ocean, mm. in a kind of pavilion that overlooks the ocean. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's this kind of imagined world, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so kind of pavilion maybe built by Zaha Hadid <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know with so it's in somewhere where the weather's not going to be too bad or it mm -hmm. will be a wonderful wonderful evening and the weather will be really balmy not too hot not too cold and there will be birds lots and lots of bird flora and fauna mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and particularly birds bird song in the evening mm. um yeah so it's an entirely imagined place but it, it's <laughs> Very, very cool. <laughs> very beautiful. <laughs> um, and what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening? Okay, so my tunes. Um, well, I've picked 
Donna Summer, I Need Love, because Mm -hmm. that is just an anthem. And for me, it's something that I used to play really, really loudly in the car with all the windows down. (laughs) And it's just one of those real uplifting, incredibly um, ahead of its time tunes. And yeah, it's a massively good dance tune. And yeah, so it's she she's uh, got a fantastically big voice. Mm. And um, yeah, so that's on repeat. But they kind of not to, you know, maybe when we, you know, the maybe at the beginning of the, the evening when we're having a bit of a dance, but whilst we're eating, maybe it's a little bit too, it's a little bit too much. Yeah. <laughs> so and the, and when you're eating, what, what will be pilling then? OK, I think while we're eating. It's going to be Eric Sarty. Now, you know, it's good to have a to sort of have a man in there. His music's there. He doesn't have to actually come and sit at the table. Of course. Um, <laughs> kind of an interesting man. Uh, some accounts say he, he wasn't that pleasant of a man, but he was a misfit and an oddball. And he um, he composed the most extraordinarily beautiful music for piano. So I've picked one track which is part of a whole cycle um and it's gymniopathies number one mm-hmm. but they were a whole cycle so if I were allowed I'd like to have the whole cycle of those I think um, I'll, I'll allow that because it's one allow of, that? okay no, well that's my favorite sort of one piece of music really and it's just the most hauntingly beautiful piano music with a kind of very very repetitive and hypnotic feel to it and I sometimes play it when I'm writing. I mean, I find it very difficult to play music while I'm writing because often it can be, it can sort of draw you in too much. But I can have that very quietly on in the background while I'm writing. And I listen to it over and over and over again because mm-hmm. because it has this kind of meditative aspect to it. And also, he was part of a movement in Paris which included people who were really breaking the boundaries of art. So, you know, I feel that's a good thing. And I think, you know, anyone that seeks to break down the the boundaries of established structures, um, in, in particularly creative ones, it's got to be a good thing. So mm. we're having that while we're eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about your third tune? Okay, my third tune is kind of when we've all had a little bit too much to drink. And we are having our, you know, our little, like, shots at the end of the meal. <laughs> and we want to get up and really shake it down. What are we, <laughs> we're going to have, I think we're going to probably have just, like, you know, flavoured vodka shots, maybe mm. like a lemon vodka or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And because it's nice and crisp and we'll kind of, you know, help as, as a kind of digestive. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're going to get up and we're going to really, really dance to Annie Lennox. Sisters are doing it for themselves because yeah. I think we've had great conversations about sisters doing it for themselves and these sisters are all doing it for themselves. Mm, yeah, Definitely. I mean, that sounds like a brilliant trajectory of evening. I'd love to hear what you're serving. Firstly, are you cooking or have you got a personal chef to do this for the evening? I am definitely not cooking. I'm not <laughs> a personal chef. 
<laughs> yeah, because I'm not really a good cook. Um, okay. uh, you know, I can do, I can do, I've got two or three dishes that I can do perfectly well, but um, no, I'm not a good cook. And actually, maybe I'd have my son cooking for us because he's a really good cook. Oh, and he, nice. he would be able to do all these things really well. Okay. So he's allowed to come and cook. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so he's serving first cold cucumber soup, which is just, you know, as an English woman, Mm. I feel like that represents my Englishness. There's something about cucumber that's just the most wonderful thing to have in the summer. And there's a kind of lovely coolness to it. And a cold soup is a sort of, it's a lovely preparation. It doesn't overfill you. Because sometimes I tend to be quite greedy. And if I have a really massive starter, I'll, you know, I'll have the starter and loads of bread and everything. And then by the time the night course comes, I'm really full. (laughs) the cucumber soup is a lovely kind of, you know, moderate thing to mm-hmm. eat first. And it, but it will be really beautifully flavoured, all the flavour balances. Um, so that's what we're having. And I don't know if we're going to have maybe a little kind of dollop of caviar on it. Perhaps. Mm, delicious. Might be quite nice. <laughs> I, that sounds delicious. I love cold. Any cold soup is just wonderful. So cold cucumber yeah. soup sounds delish yeah yeah and I think we might have a little cocktail with it actually Mm -hmm. um I'm thinking or we'll yeah we'll have a cocktail just before um it'll probably be just a kind of clean martini Mm. um yeah and then the the cold cucumber soup with a lovely crisp white wine delicious delicious and and for your main so main yeah, and we're going to have this. We're going to continue with the white wine, and I think probably something like a Riesling or a German Gewurztraminer. So, you know, one of those sort of weird, woody white wines, because mm-hmm. I'm going for a very, very heavily spiced pad thai. Delicious. I love a pad thai. Yeah. And if ever, my kids always tease me because if ever I go to a Thai restaurant, that's what I have. I always have to <laughs> But a really, really good pad thai. You can't beat it. It's got everything. It's got tons of lovely crisp vegetables. Mm-hmm. And it's got, I mean, I want mine to have seafood and prawns in it mm-hmm. rather than chicken because I'm a bit more of a seafood person. Mm-hmm. So we're having pad thai with prawns, shelled prawns. I can't be dealing with all the business of having to shell them yourself. That's too <laughs> messy. I mean, um, I think that, that seafood goes with your location as well. It can be freshly... It does. So it's all caught. freshly fished. Yeah. By my son, presumably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're really been, making him work. <laughs> be now on the boat to get the fish earlier, which would be a fun trip as well. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. Um, and with your pad thai, you know, lots of peanuts, her- fresh herbs, that kind of thing. Yeah, tons yeah. of fresh mint. And yes, all the peanuts and crushed peanuts and mm. yeah, sort of everything. But it's like the it's the flavor balances with that. Mm. that you've got to have, you know, the, there's a kind of lemony sort of slightly astringent thing going on. But there's also the chili thing going on. So all of that, it will be perfect with the noodles, just just crisp enough. Um, yeah yeah delicious so you've had your pad thai you're still on wine uh what about for your last course 
Okay, well, you know, can I just insert a little palate cleanser? Mm, definitely. A, a little sorbet in there. Yes. So, um, you know, just a, I don't know, I had this amazing um, sorbet that was a chamomile sorbet I had somewhere. It was mint and chamomile, and it was literally the best thing I'd ever tasted. It mm. was so delicious. So I'm just slipping that in. Mm, definitely I've never I can't imagine what chamomile sorbet might taste like was it very kind of light and really refreshing really refreshing delicious and then for um for pudding I mean I've become obsessed with mochi balls Mm. and it may sound a bit pedestrian but you know I'm counting on like incredible flavors uh, unusual flavors of them but there's just something about that slightly squidgy outside and then the yummy inside cold ice cream and I love those really fruity ones you can get the kind of you know cassis flavor or mango flavor Uh and then obviously I'm a massive chocoholic so you know gotta have some of the nice fruity ones balanced with maybe a white chocolate one and then a really dark chocolate one. Mm, delicious. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining thinking. like a tower of mochi in the middle of the table. I'm thinking that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of you kind of grabbing it. <laughs> like those French wedding cakes. It's a kind of towering thing. And there are only three of each flavor. So we can each have, oh, well, four, because otherwise I'm left out. We can sort of... <laughs> So we can each have one of each flavor, and there are something like sixteen different flavors. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, That's yes. <laughs> Is that too indulgent? No, God, it's your dream dinner party. It's, there's no such thing as too indulgent. Yeah. Right, and I don't put. And none of us put on any weight while we're eating. <laughs> we remain really healthy. <laughs> yeah, so it's a zero calories. Um, zero calories. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine, um, you know, Mary Shelley and Artemisia Gentileschi trying pad thai and mochi for the first time, because I'm sure Emma Darcy is, an, you know, an old hatter, kind of, those kind of, yeah. she's, she's li- you know, they're, sorry, they're living at the moment. But for um, Mary and Artemisia, that's quite a new, those are quite new <laughs> foods. Yeah, they, they would have likely never, never tasted those. I don't even know if they had pasta in in um Italy at that time I think it they might have just had sort of early forms of pasta but it's quite astonishing to think that in 1611 they I think they they might have been the beginning of pasta but you know if you think that Italian food has been all about pasta forever Mm. not the case and even tomatoes a hundred years before that they had no tomatoes in Italy because they came mm. from the new world yeah. so it's kind of interesting to think about food and and history and yeah. what what there wasn't at yeah. the time particularly when I was right for the times for my books yeah super interesting I mean I, I'd love to talk to you a bit more about your your own writing and your career um what first inspired you to write when you kind of first started writing novels and that kind of thing, what was first inspiring you? Okay, well, I had, you know, I wanted to write since since I was a child, really, and um, but it took me a long time to actually pull it together. And some people just have, you know, are able to do it at a really young age, whereas it took me a long time to gather my thoughts. And I had written three novels before I wrote my first published novels, none of which could 
none of which really saw the light of day. Um, and then I had, when I, I studied English at university and I had, I had engaged a lot with women writers of the Renaissance because we don't really, you know, we think of that period as all male writers and particularly Shakespeare. Um, but in fact, it was a time when lots of female voices were emerging and there were, you know, but of course those women uh, wouldn't, have never really been remembered for their writing. But I studied the writings of Catherine Parr, who was the last wife of Henry VIII. And I, when I looked into her biography, I thought, wow, you know, she's someone that, you know, no one's really ever written a novel set around her life. She had this extraordinary life. She was married four times. She was a highly successful author, political author, religious stroke political author, because in those days, religion and politics couldn't be, uh, you know, um, couldn't be separated. Um, she was, a, yeah, an unbelievable figure. She survived a plot on her life. Nobody really knows that. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write a novel about her. And then I thought, well, I can't. I'm not a historian. I should just stick to what I'm doing, which I was writing contemporary novels with no success at all. And I changed agents and my new agent just said, well, it doesn't matter that you're not a historian as long as you do your research and you're a novelist, it's fiction and you do it your way. Um, so that kind of liberated me in a way. And of course, that was the book that helped me find my voice. And in fact, rather ironically, because Catherine Parr and Artemisia, they sort of share a common thread. They were both creating, uh, you know, they were creating art, uh, literally in Artemisia's sense and um, in writing in Catherine Parr's sense against the patriarchy. They were standing up to the patriarchy and Catherine Parr was an older woman. I mean, she was only in her 30s, which in those days was considered very quite mature. Um, so they're like, they're like a young and an older woman. Um, who have a who have a relationship to one another in terms of their stories and their trajectories they both they both had to deal with the most appalling obstacles mm. um to not only survive but to get their art out there and um so it's interesting that this novel of mine queen's gambit it's called uh has been pub published 10 years ago that the film adaptation of it which is called firebrand for quite obvious reasons um, you know, that they're both emerging at the same time, you know, 10 years on, Catherine Parr's kind of coming back to me and I've re-edited that novel um, to be released as Firebrand or to be re-released as Firebrand this autumn. So uh, these two heroines have such a strong relationship to one another um, and it's just coincidence that they're both emerging again at the same time. Yeah, so... Catherine was my kind of entry into historical fiction, my my portal into historical fiction, um, and that I haven't stopped since. I never really thought that I would be doing that because I I never it was never a history was never really a subject that that I had. Well, I you know I was interested in it, but I was interested in it from a literary perspective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you find quite so kind of enthralling about these historical women of the 16th century? Why, why this particular time period 
um, and you know why Europe, why this particular kind of um, era? Well, I think for me that period, that fifty years from from approximately. 1540 to 1640, 1530 to 1630, uh, 1530 to 1600, sorry. Um, those years uh, were significant because they chart the rise of the educated woman. And so women hadn't particularly been educated, but there was a sort of movement in the early 16th century to for kind of intellectuals and the kind of upper classes to educate their daughters um in it it was a kind of followers of erasmus so thomas more rather famously um educated his daughters uh very very well and they could speak latin and greek and they could translate all the texts and and so those the women that we know about from that period all came from that that education, Elizabeth I, Mary Tudor, Catherine Parr, they were all educated in this way. And then it kind of fell out of fashion. I think uh, really it was, you know, people started to see women thinking for themselves and thought it might be a rather dangerous thing. And so when you get into the 17th century, you really see that being closed down. But effectively what we have in the latter part of the 16th century is is half a century of female rule it was completely unprecedented it was so after henry came edward and he ruled only for about six years and then you know there, there were no he had no heirs. he died when he was 16 and there were no um there were no men in the direct tudor line um and they were scrabbling around in the kind of far reaches of the 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 you know the royal line to try and find a male heir, but there just there was nobody. It was all women, mm-hmm. and of course, then we have the really terribly tragic story of Jane Grey, who was pushed onto the throne. Age she was sixteen or seventeen. We don't know her actual uh, year of birth, um, and you know, ultimately was executed. Uh, because Mary Tudor raised an army and basically pushed her off the throne. Um, I mean, what stories? So I just, when I, you know, when I was researching Catherine Parr, I became aware and really engaged with all these stories because Elizabeth I was uh, Catherine Parr's stepdaughter. And when, after Henry had died, she lived in her, in Catherine's household. Um, and also Jane Grey lived in Catherine Parr's household. So you have these, and, and also obviously Mary Tudor was also her stepdaughter. So you have this one woman who, you know, in some senses raised um, two Queens of England and was, you know, very, a very closely uh, connected to another one. Um, so Catherine Parr, in a sense, I saw her as the starting point for all these women who were to reach the, you know, the pinnacle of um, of society in an age where women were never on top. Mm. Society had to kind of tie itself in knots to accept a woman on the throne. It was really, really complicated. And I also, I mean, there's there was I was so horrified by stories like that of 
Jane Grey, who, an executed teenager, I mean, you know, it's brutal to think what happened to those young women. And so my next novel after Queen's Gambit stroke Firebrand is called Sisters of Treason and it's about Jane Grey. Well, you know, no spoilers, she's executed in the first chapter. Mm. And then it's about her sisters, two young, very young women at the time, Catherine and Mary. Catherine, when her sister was executed, Catherine was 14. And Mary was only nine and Mary was quite severely disabled. She was very, very small and had severe scoliosis. And yet she had to negotiate this incredibly dangerous court under Mary Tudor, who had brought the then suddenly imposing Catholicism back on a country that had been um, had been Protestant uh, for some years by then. Um, and she's known as Bloody Mary, and there's a reason for it. You know, there were people were burned, people were people were executed for for not um, for refusing to take her Catholic oath. And so these young girls had to negotiate living at court under the eye of the this this monarch who was also their cousin. Um, they were, couldn't put a foot wrong. So I follow their stories and they have the most tr tragic stories, um, but they're fascinating. And what it, what it does is also allow us to see the reign of Mary Tudor and, you know, the, the suffering she underwent on the throne. And then also um, she dies during the, the course of that novel and Elizabeth comes to the throne. And then of all the, so these poor girls are now having to change everything and, you know, have to be, you know, negotiated completely different kind of court because Elizabeth was a Protestant queen. Um, so I, I wanted to explore the, that period of female rule through, through this series of novels and uh watch the lady which focuses on another woman um at court at the time penelope rich who was the sister of the earl of essex and became very involved with his rather disastrous coup where he lost his head and she managed to to keep hers um she was close to elizabeth I, and so we can see elizabeth's reign through her eyes mm. um and then the, my my other Tudor Tudor Elizabethan novel is uh, the Girl in the Glass Tower, which is about really about um, again about the succession, and it's about a, a young woman called Arbella Stewart who who was who Elizabeth named as her heir. She was she was a distant cousin in the Tudor family, and she the Stuart family really, but the Stuart I I won't go into how, it's so complicated how the Stuarts and the <laughs> intertwined but she was she was uh, very much in line to the throne and kind of raised to be Elizabeth's successor and never was and she oh she was kind of in, she was imprisoned and she made an escape she dressed as a boy and you know rode down to um rode down to I think somewhere like Folkestone or somewhere and I can't really remember it's a long time ago I read that book and then took a boat and then of course the boat was um was uh 
was stopped and she was taken back to the Tower of London. Uh, you know, it's an amazing story of Bella Stewart. No one's heard of her. Mm. So I really, you know, I, I, my project has been to look at these women, to consider their lives and think about the kinds of situations they were put in uh, just by dint of their birth. Mm. Um, and yeah, you know, I just, I became very, very fascinated by that that idea also of, you know, what we look as at as privileged, you know, being a princess or being the heir to the throne. And, you know, if you're a girl, actually, what it means if you're a princess is either you're going to be married off to some total stranger mm. in a, a place, don't travel off to a place you've never been, you know, usually speaking a language you've never spoken um, and have to make a new life there as a broodmare, basically. So that, you know, I'm kind of trying to burst the idea of the princess being mm. something uh, that young women aspire to be. Mm. It's a really brutal role to take on. You know, you may be privileged, but you're living in a, in a you know, an ivory tower with, with no, no choice over the path your life might take. So mm. I, was, I became really interested in that. Um, yeah, so that's where those books came from. I mean, so Artemisia kind of is a, is an addition to those um, that line of women that you've tried to kind of showcase their lives and um, their experiences. And and your new novel envisages that Artemisia uses the rage of her experience of sexual abuse at quite a young age to create her first great masterpiece, which you've um, talked about earlier on in the podcast, um, ultimately becoming one of the kind of great masters of her time. Um, why did you choose this particular angle? Is it a kind of, did it mean something personally to you? It, it did, yes. I mean, it's something uh, that I had wanted to write her story for a long time because uh, it had resonated very strongly with me. I um, also, at a similar age to her, uh, had been brutally raped and so I felt our stories had an affinity and in a sense creating this novel was me channeling my rage into my experience through her story so you know that, that I feel like any story of rape or sexual abuse is every woman's story and I you know I it, I think it took me a long time to come to terms with just being able to confront my story, to confront the shame that's also always associated with those kind of experiences for women. And to be able to just, you know, when you're writing a novel, you have to live with your characters and their experiences every day, 24 hours a day. And I think it took, I don't know, it took some distance and some I don't know, arriving at a point in my life where I felt I was able to do that. And in fact, I wrote this um, in, I really kind of wrote the first draft in early lockdown, which was a kind of, you know, one of those interesting moments of self-reflection. And I think what had happened was the, the Me Too movement had had really galvanized me. I saw all these women coming out and telling their stories and being really empowered by that. And I thought, you know, listen, this is the moment. I've got to do it. I can't 
reach the end of my life and think I have not told that story through my fiction Mm. so yeah that's where it came from and in fact it was a really a hugely cathartic experience putting that story on the page and it made me feel in a sense untouchable and it made me feel like I in a sense had had some kind of revenge I, I it's, it's a strong word to use but I also really really wanted to write a story in which a woman has suffered a really really appalling experience at the hands of a man mm. and yet she be, became rather than being a victim she's a survivor but a survivor in the strongest sense of the word and you know ironically Catherine Parr is also called the wife who survived you know behave what, or how does it go um divorced beheaded died divorced yeah. beheaded survived you know so they're both survivors I'm a survivor most women are survivors of some kind of sexual unwanted sexual attention at the very least and proper sexual abuse as it's worst. and so I dedicated to book the book to the survivors mm. and you know it that's very very important for me and it's been very important for me to speak out about it I I always resisted speaking out because I didn't want to be pitied but I think a lot of people when you confide something that's quite a, a difficult experience like that they don't know how to react and they usually react with uh, with pity and I you know I didn't want pity I wanted people to just kind of acknowledge and move on and, you know and I feel like through writing this book that's enabled me to to speak about it without engendering pity or shame so yeah it's been a really really uh, a really interesting process for me and it's very very personal so I'm nervous about how the book will be received I mean thank you so much for sharing how personal that story is to you I I refute your claim that um you know it's not revenge to write <laughs> I think that there are many different types of revenge and it, I, I feel that writing a novel channeling the fact that you're a survivor is just as much of a revenge as as anything else so um I, I and I, I hope that kind of people will respond in that way as well I'm, I'm yet to read the book but I'm really excited to read it and I I, I want to make the book club read it as well <laughs> um, well I hope I really hope you enjoy it I hope you know she is an incredible character and uh you know I hope I've done her justice really yeah I'm sure I'm sure you have um well thank you so much Elizabeth um for sharing your story with me today for sharing your a boundless knowledge about this kind of period of history um it's been a wonderful conversation I, I loved your dinner party uh, I thought it was particularly kind of impressive that you managed to get two women from completely different time periods in one place um, <laughs> as well as uh you know some architecture designed by <laughs> yeah 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 and I think I forgot <laughs> to I forgot to add the cocktail didn't I the um oh, yeah uh the emma darcy cocktail oh yeah 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 uh, um i can't even remember what it's called now but it's got prosecco in it that that i know i think it's um, <laughs> a, 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 spagliato. spagliati yeah that's yeah, it with prosecco in it. <laughs> <laughs> prosecco in it yeah yeah i should have made that our cocktail but we can have that too <laughs> and then we can be really drunk when we're dancing to yeah. Lena. <laughs> um <laughs> i always ask my guests just one final question 
to kind of end the podcast just briefly um what are you doing on an everyday basis in, in a small way to become a better feminist either for yourself or for those around you well i am i'm standing up for the women of history i mean i'm writing every day to do that and i call out i try and call out in my male friends i try and call out when they are unconsciously misogynistic and I know it makes me a frightful bore but I don't <laughs> care <laughs> so you know if they say something I'll pull them up on it even if it's something quite mild you know I just try and make them think about it mm. yeah that's a, a wonderful answer well thank you so much Elizabeth for for joining us today that's been my great pleasure I've really really enjoyed myself <laughs>